You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. Today's episode is part four of five for our IPO mini-series. If you haven't listened to the other three episodes, I would encourage you to listen to those first before jumping into this one. We've hit on the overall process in episode one, IPO readiness in episode two, crunching the numbers and the financial statement requirements in episode three, and today we'll go beyond the financial statements and talk through other registration statement matters too. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new. This is Sarah Cage and I'm joined by my co-host Adam Olson, Embark's National Quality Leader, and I'd like to introduce our special guest, Tyler Stage, a Senior Manager in our Capital Markets Practice. Welcome to the show, Tyler. Thanks, Sarah. Happy to be here. Today we find ourselves in part four of our five-part IPO mini-series, and we've got a lot to cover today, so let's get right to it. So previously we talked about the financial statements and all the requirements around those for an IPO. I know the buck doesn't stop there when it comes to preparing for an IPO. So Adam, can you give us an introduction to the entire registration statement that is filed as part of an IPO? Yeah, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, the financial statements that we talked about on the last episode, obviously a huge critical element, lots of effort that goes into shoring those up and um, uplifting those to be ready for the IPO. But it really is just one element that goes into the overall registration statement. So the registration statement, which is typically Form S1 for most IPOs, um, also contains a number of other disclosures that have to be added to it in addition to just the financial statements themselves. And so these are financial, business-related, risk-related type disclosures that really need to speak to the company and overall the securities that are being offered um, in the registration. Um, when you think about like what governs some of those additional requirements in the registration statement, it really comes down to two you know main sets of SEC regulations. So the first one, Regulation SX, we did talk a bit about with our financial statements um, episode last time because this really is the SEC rules and regulations around um, reporting requirements that are actually for the financial statements themselves. So you'll often hear people refer to the financial statements as the F pages in that in that statement. Um, but in addition to Regulation SX, there is also Regulation SK, which speaks to the requirements that the SEC has for information that's outside the financial statement. So everything else we're going to be talking about for the most part today is going to be driven by the regulations that are in Regulation SK. And are there any other SEC regulations beyond that SK and SX? Yeah, there are. So those really kind of help set the framework for what's required in the registration statement. But, you know, kind of layering onto those regulations, um, the SEC has also put out a number of different things that either help like with interpretations of some of that guidance or maybe clarify some of the rulemaking, et cetera. So some other things to keep in mind are the SEC's financial reporting manual. You'll hear people refer to the FRM. Um, the SEC staff will put out stuff from time to time in the in SAB um, issuances, which are staff accounting bulletins you'll hear referenced. And then there's also, um, you know, disclosures and interpretation guidance that's also put out by the SEC. These are just a few of them out there. There's other things that exist, but probably the more common types of additional interpretations to keep in mind. Great. And Tyler, in your experience, how does the overall drafting <laughs> process for the registration process generally work? Well, it's a very long and time-consuming process. <laughs> um, and it can be a challenge at some times. And 
I say it can be a challenge because there's multiple parties involved. Yep. Just in your company alone, um, like you're not just looking at the financial piece of the company in a vacuum. So you're having to talk to your management team, marketing, finance, um, operations, like all these different groups of people within your company. And that's just your company. Then you add in all the external parties. So you have external lawyers, bankers, IPO advisors, just all these different groups of people coming together to work on this one document um, can be a challenge. Yeah. Like that giant group project in college or something <laughs> where everyone's got a thought. A nightmare. <laughs> exactly. Keep in mind, all parties involved in the registration process need to have a reasonable belief that as of the effective date of that registration statement, there's no significant untrue or misleading information and that nothing material has been left out. Mm -hmm. um, these due diligence procedures are imperative as the 1933 Act holds all parties participating in the registration liable for material misstatements or omissions. So once the registration statement is all drafted, all of those different parties are on board with what's being presented, <clears throat> that it's complete, accurate, and reasonable, what happens next? Well, then you file it with the SEC. And typically after you file it, usually takes about a month, uh, give or take a little bit for the SEC to respond to your initial draft. Um, now keep in mind, when the SEC performs their review, they're only checking that it complies with all the applicable um, regulations. So what Adam mentioned earlier, regulation SX and X SK. They're not gonna tell you if it's a good investment or not. Like that's not their objective. Mm -hmm. They're only looking, does it apply with all the regulations? Um, so after that initial draft, usually takes 30 days. And then I would expect several back and forth with the SEC as they provide comments, mm -hmm. you respond to comments, edit the document as needed, you'll go through a few rounds of that. So when that draft registration is filed with the SEC, is it available for the general public to already start and access it and scrutinize it? Thankfully, no. Um, so you're allowed to submit it confidentially to the SEC. So it's not public information when you first um, submit it. And that has a few good details about it because your competitors um, and the world, frankly, won't know that you're trying to go public. Mm -hmm. So you can keep all that secret until up until you know, the last minute um, that you're ready to declare your registration statement effective. And when does this information during that confidential review become public, if at all? Yeah, so, you know, like Tyler mentioned, you know, historically, we, you actually didn't have this protection. So like when you originally would file like your initial draft registration statement, it used to just be out there for everyone to look at. But obviously, there were some changes with the Jobs Act and the FAST Act that helped protect all potential registrants from having to like worry about competitors or anyone seeing their seeing their information or understanding that, you know, that they were planning to go public um, until much later in the process. So you do get some temporary shielding, I would say, but ultimately that information is going to eventually come out of the woodwork and you're, it's going to be, you know, available for everyone to start looking at. Um, so confidential submissions, you know, specifically around the registration statement, they're going to have to be filed publicly 
um, depending on whether or not the company decides to do a road show or not. So if a company decides to go on a road show and this you know dog and pony show really is trying to sell their their offering, you know any draft registration statements are going to be made public 15 days before the start of that. Um, if no road shows plan, you know they're just going to directly go with the offering itself. It's going to be you know whenever they request the effective date of the offering. Um, also keep in mind, as you know, Tyler mentioned during that initial draft registration process, you know, the SEC is reviewing things, it's scrutinizing, you know, your disclosures, you know, the information you have in the documents, and there's going to be that comment period where the SEC is going to come back and ask questions about specific items that are in the registration statement. So those comments, as well as any of the company's responses to those comments, also will be made um, publicly available as well. So also keep in mind that, you know, the issues raised by the SEC and your response to those will eventually become public as well. I guess that's why they call it going public, because <laughs> public information. It is, right? <laughs> like, is that such a novel concept yeah. or not? Yeah. So what exactly happens during that SEC comment process you just mentioned? Yeah, so the staff will obviously review the draft registration statement. Sometimes there's specific staff members that focus in certain industries or locations or whatever. So they, they may be certain groups of the SEC staff that review your registration statement, just depending on the type of registrant you are. Um, but they're basically going to go through it and make sure that you're complying with everything. Like we talked about Regulation SX, SK, US GAAP, if that's the accounting framework. All of those things, you know, are we really putting out there um, clear and transparent information that's required by those those different sets of standards um, for potential investors? And so the comments you actually get from the SEC can vary widely, right? They kind of could depend on the nature of your operations, historically, the business itself, the level of disclosures you have, the industry you operate in. Um, so they aren't always going to be consistent from filing to filing. Uh, but that being said, you know, oftentimes there are trends in SEC comments. So the SEC, you know, may have a certain focus on certain things, particularly with initial registrants where they're maybe always questioning things around segments, for example, and how those were determined or uh, maybe the breadth of MDNA, whether there's enough transparency in MDNA or risk factors or things of that nature. So we tend to also see trends in SEC comments where things recur year over year, or it may just be a certain focus this year. So when they provide their comments, they're basically then looking to the company to come up with some type of response. And mm -hmm. so they're either expecting maybe just a more thorough analysis to understand um, you know, what's going on with a particular disclosure or issue. They may be looking for additional disclosure to be made if something was maybe lax on it or not, not transparent enough or maybe omitted altogether. Um, so it kind of just depends. So there there could be some revisions that need to be made during the process. And what are some specific expectations on a company when they do receive a comment letter from the SEC? Yeah, so the you know, I think everyone's like, it shouldn't shock you. That should be first. Like everyone gets comments from the SEC. And it's also not just maybe just a side note, it's not just like an IPO thing. Like once you become public, <laughs> like they can still continue Ongoing to comment process. on things. So <laughs> Uh, this isn't like a one and done thing. Your homework's always being graded, I guess, is how you can look at it. Um, <laughs> but first off, if you you know you get the comments, you're obviously going to sit around with your your team that helped work on the registration statement itself. So obviously, management, lawyers, advisors, et cetera, generally come together to look at the list of comments that were raised. And you know, first off, if there's things on there you're not certain of, like 
maybe it's not clear what they're asking about or you're not really sure what they're looking for. You know, that that should, you know, before you move into trying to address them, you know, reach out to the staff that reviewed your filing and really try to get some clarity on on the comment itself or the expectations around that comment so that you understand when you're moving to kind of the next step, which is to respond to those comments, you're actually um, addressing what they're looking for and you don't have this like back and forth, back and forth on the same comment. So usually you'll draft a letter. The letter can will speak either to revisions that have been made or will be made in the subsequent draft of the registration statement, or maybe it's clarifying things why you think what you already have in there is sufficient um, for, the, for what they're asking the question on, or maybe it's clarifying a point of view or a, a conclusion that was made by, by the registrant itself. If you are going to make revisions, you'll note that as well, and, you, and you'll respond to the SEC. They'll review those responses. You know, they may have additional comments based on your responses. Um, obviously, they could remove comments if they're satisfied with it. And so that process could go back and forth, um, like Tyler mentioned, sometimes, you know, several times. Um, so that's something else you want to kind of just bake into when you're preparing the initial draft. It's like how much effort you put into creating a good initial draft will really help, you know, kind of downplay some of the comments. But don't be surprised like if you actually get comments because it is just part of the drill. And I, I would say being an accountant. <laughs> yeah. And I would say a good goal when you're going back and forth with the SEC responding to comments, a good internal goal would be to cut those comments in half with every response that you send back to the SEC. No. And if you feel like you're getting a repeated comment and you feel like you've already addressed it, you can refer back to like previous responses and be like here you go. We will we defer your comment to this response and this letter, whatever. Um, but again, that's where maybe some clarity needs to be had with the staff. If you aren't seeming to address their comment, is to make sure you actually understand the comment in itself. That feels like the SEC version of per my last email. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so at the top of the episode, we mentioned some common disclosures required by SEC regulations that. Um, maybe outside of the fa financial statements. So what are some of the more prominent disclosures that might be a heavier lift for management teams, their legal counsel, and their underwriters when they're drafting these registration statements? So there's several disclosures, but the meaty ones, um, I would say there's three big ones that take a significant effort to put together. Um, MD&A being one, so management's discussion and analysis, basically, from the eyes of management, how do you view your business? Mm -hmm. um, Non-GAAP measures, this is a huge focus of the SEC, has been for as long as I can remember, and I'm sure it will continue to be a focus, um, and then pro forma information. All right, so let's take each of those one at a time, as we do around here. Uh, starting with MDNA, I think of MDNA as the registrant's <coughs> management, basically telling the story of their business. So. What are some of the specific requirements around including MDNA in the registration process? Yeah, so every registration statement must have MDNA, and that's set out <clears throat> in item SK303. So the purpose of MDNA, like I mentioned earlier, it's to really let investors and readers see the company through management's eyes. Because mm -hmm. um, you want investors and analysts analyzing your company how you do, how you hold your employees and operations to the standards um, that you do. So again, 
provide them an understanding of your financial condition, any changes in that financial condition from period to period, um, and the results of your operations. It will explain the issuer's business, like I mentioned, as management sees it. And it will also identify and discuss the key metrics that they use to evaluate their business. And it really determines, you know, these key metrics provide you a pulse of how healthy the company is um, as an investor. So moving on to non-GAAP measures, Adam, I keep hearing more and more about this. We've touched on this in prior podcasts, yep. but why do registrants include non-GAAP measures? Yeah, so non-GAAP measurements are obviously more and more prominent, and really they're just kind of like alternative financial performance or liquidity measurements. So they're going to be derived from some type of GAAP measurement or metric, um, but the calculation or the non-GAAP measurement itself is not going to be presented in accordance with GAAP. So all that being said, you know, the most common example and best way to illustrate this is like EBITDA. That's generally in most registration statements. It's a metric everyone's very familiar with, but technically it's non-GAAP. But you'll often see EBITDA presented um, as a way to just show different different aspects of the business itself that don't exist under US GAAP. And so the SEC's rules, you know, they are pretty strict around non-GAAP measures just because of the, the nature of non-GAAP and the subjectivity that could come into play. Mm -hmm. And so they really try to limit where registrants um, apply non-GAAP measures in their registration statement. So it's important that you are familiar with the rules and what is permissible and what isn't as it relates to non-GAAP measures. Um, so there's several SEC interpretations of the rules to help people understand how to apply some of the rules, um, particularly in today's times with, if you think about COVID and all the different kind of one-offs and unique circumstances that many organizations went through. Uh, I think a lot of people were trying to justify non-GAAP measurements and adjustments <laughs> for non-GAAP measurements um, all over the place. And so, you know, really at the end of the day, you have to apply the same, same methodology and rules that the SEC's laid out. But a couple things to think about with the guidance around non-GAAP measurements is there's there's focus on prominence. So obviously you can't put stuff in your registration statement that puts the non-GAAP you know metric or measurement above the actual GAAP um, measurements or the related GAAP measurement or, or metric itself. Um, obviously your non-GAAP measurement can't be so subjective and misleading that it you know investors are kind of given a different story versus what reality is for the company. You have to reconcile that not and gap measure um, all the way back to its related gap measurement. Um, you need to label things as non-gap, and it has to be clear. You can't use similar titles that may, you know, give the appearance that these are certain gap um, descriptions or whatever. It has to be obvious that this is a non-gap metric. Mm -hmm. um, and then you really have to explain why that non-GAAP metric is included, why it's useful, why management uses it, why investors, you know. You know, are going to find value in that non-GAAP metric. You can't just kind of throw things in there just kind of willy-nilly. It has to have like a defined purpose. I'm surprised we didn't see EBITDA come out right this before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if someone tried. <laughs> um, so last one, pro forma financial statements. Tyler, what's the purpose of including pro forma financial information in a registration statement? In your registration statement, you have a bunch of historical financial information. So the point of pro formas is to say, hey, my company as it's running today, 
had we been running the company as it is today, back at the earliest period presented, what would our historical financials have looked like? Hmm. So just to give an example, if you had a lot of debt a year ago, but today that debt's gone, it's paid off, well, you wanna adjust your historical financials to reflect the debt off your balance sheet and lower interest expense. So you wanna give investors a view and a snapshot of, hey, if we were running our company like we were today, here's how our historical financials would have been back at that time. I like that, that's a very clear way to describe that. So what does pro forma financial information include when presenting it in the registration statement? So generally you have a pro forma balance sheet and income statement. So we'll take the balance sheet first. So when calculating your pro forma balance sheet adjustments, like I mentioned earlier, it's assumed that transaction occurred as of that balance sheet date. And keep in mind, a pro forma balance sheet is not required if that transaction's already in your historical financials. So you can't double up adjustments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now your pro forma income statement, it's required for both the registrant's most recent fiscal year and any subsequent year-to-date interim period included in the S-1. So when you're calculating those adjustments, it's assumed the transaction occurred again at the beginning of the most recently completed fiscal year. But the thing that's different with the income statement, you carry that same adjustment forward. So there's not a break like there is for your balance sheet. Those continue on assuming you present a later interim period uh, P&L. Um, the SEC normally does not permit a company to prepare pro forma financial information for more than one complete fiscal year. However, a company must provide pro forma information for all periods presented in its historical financial statements if the pro forma information reflects the impact of a transaction that must be revised retrospectively in your historical financials. Similar to the requirements for the pro forma balance sheet, pro forma income statements not required if that transaction is included in your historical financials. Also, pro forma information may be included in a registrant statement to reflect the impact of a recent acquisition, mm -hmm. um, how you're gonna use your use of proceeds that you get, are you gonna pay down debt, are you gonna build a war chest, what are you gonna do with that? Yep. Um, so you just want all that reflected so investors can see. So you mentioned adjustments a few times in there related to pro formas, so can you explain what types of adjustment a registrant makes when preparing pro forma statements? Sure. So there's two main types of adjustments, transaction accounting adjustments and autonomous entity adjustments. So I think a lot of people are familiar with transaction accounting adjustments. So those are limited to those that reflect the accounting for transaction in accordance with GAAP, for example. They may include the recognition of goodwill, intangible assets, adjustments related to your assets and liabilities on the balance sheet, as well as any adjustments on the income statement. Now, the second adjustment I mentioned, autonomous entity adjustments, people may not be as familiar with these because they're only required if the registrant was previously part of another entity. So these are adjustments to reflect any incremental expenses that a company would incur if it were a standalone entity and not a part of a larger organization. Um, now, I know that's kind of confusing. So <laughs> a 
let me try to give a simple example. So let's say once the company is publicly traded, it plans to spin off part of the company. Um, well, because you're spinning it off and it's no longer part of the parent, you have to reflect any incremental costs that that standalone entity is gonna incur. Let's just say historically they were allocated $15 million of overhead, but now as a standalone entity, they're gonna incur 25 million of those costs. So you have to reflect an adjustment of 10 million bucks to reflect those incremental overhead costs that that standalone entity is gonna incur. We love examples around here. I think that helps a lot. So aside from the big three we just covered, MDNA, non-GAAP, and pro formas, what are some other common disclosures included in the registration statement? I'm gonna throw this one to you, Adam. All right, I like it. Um, <laughs> so there's obviously a litany of other things that go in the registration statement. Um, you know, to Tyler's point, those are the ones that generally take probably get the most attention, take the most time, um, involve the most analysis and probably opinions from people. Um, but obviously we'll wanna touch on some of the other things just to keep in mind and um, got a list here. You know, one thing to keep in mind as well with you know any of these disclosures is obviously anyone that's gone through an IPO in the past, we talked about things being made publicly available. You can go look at numerous examples of different ways people present some of these things and what's included in certain things. And you'll get you know input as well from your lawyers and underwriters, et cetera. Um, so to keep that in mind, but some of the bigger ones that weren't touched on in detail, you know, biggest one here is risk factors. It's, you know, common one. It's going to be very company specific. You're going to talk about which risk factors are the most significant to your business. Um, your lawyers are obviously going to help probably weigh in on this, make sure that, you know, that list of risk factors is complete. Um, and transparent and that those are all um, buttoned up. Uh, use of proceeds is another one. So Tyler mentioned this kind of as a pro forma adjustment, but really like what's the purpose of the offering itself? Like what does the company plan to do with the capital that's raised? Um, so is it gonna acquire additional businesses through acquisitions? Is it gonna, you know, and make investment in capital expenditures, pay off debt? Is it gonna build a war chest for, you know, future things down the road as the company grows? So just really giving an understanding for how the money is gonna be used. Mm -hmm. um, dividend policies, which, you know, obviously all investors probably wanna know a little bit about, hey, yeah. do you pay dividends? What's your policy around that? Um, do you plan to change your historical policies? Um, what can we expect from that side? Um, two other kind of larger ones, capitalization and dilution. So capitalization is really just kind of showing the capital structure, right? Um, both before and after the IPO. And then dilution on the other hand is really kind of showing about any differences between the IPO price um, and the net tangible book value per share and really just kind of any impacts to the offering itself and how that may impact um, the value of the shares held. Um, and both of those are generally presented in some type of tabular format. So you'll see that, you know, common disclosure if you go look at it, any examples out there. Um, just a few more to you know, wrap this up around. So, you know, there'll be disclosures around who are the officers of the companies, the directors, you know, significant um, stockholders, you know, disclosures around executive compensation. That's a big one. So really, how are, how are those officers and directors being paid, bonuses, things mm -hmm. of that nature? Um, you know, the if it's a stock offering, you know, description of, you know, the terms and conditions of that stock. 
um, that'll exist after the IPO. So understanding those rights um, and then really kind of just the overall, you know, description around the business itself. So understanding the industry they operate in, who are their key customers, the product service lines they have, where do they operate in, their operating segments, um, you know, any uncertainties, litigation, things of that nature, related party transactions that are significant. So those are just some, it's not meant to be an all-encompassing list, but uh, like I said, there's a numerous, you know, several other disclosures that you do have to layer in on top of those big three. So very lengthy document. Yeah, that's a really hefty list, which makes me think of relief. So we've talked about relief that smaller reporting companies receive in other areas like uh, the financial statement requirements. Does that extend to matters in the registration statement disclosures as well? Yeah, it does. So um, SRCs, so smaller reporting companies, they do have the ability to make more scaled down disclosures in a lot of areas. So definitely some relief there, which makes sense because they're given relief in multiple areas throughout the process. So don't want to shortcut them as well on requirements around like regulation SK matters. So, you know, if that applies to you as a registrant, if you do qualify as a smaller reporting company, definitely take a, a look at those um, scaled down disclosures because there are numerous ones out there and it definitely helps make the process for those types of companies a little bit more um, effective and efficient. Well, speaking of relief, I'm pretty relieved that we just ended this episode. <laughs> we can call it a wrap yep. on episode four out of five. So we have one more and coming up, we will talk about life after the IPO and spoiler alert, there's still plenty of work to be done even after you ring the bell. Uh, big thanks to Tyler and Adam for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. And thank you to our listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.